Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike, along with Mr. Mutlu, which I'm going to call you from now on. Hey, 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 how's it going? All right, thank you. All right, that's how the crowd's going to sound, May 20th. (laughs) The very first Carl Landry Record Club Live, which will sit in the middle. It's not just that. It's a full Mootloo show, May 20th at World Cafe Live with a Carl Landry Record Club segment in the middle. We'll talk about some of the, the our most famous, our, our most fa- our favorite like experiences talking about certain albums. Moot's going to do a bunch of covers from those albums, little 80s sitcom uh, theme right in the middle there. But May 20th at World Cafe Live, if you go to mootloosesounds.com and click on the, the tour thing, that's where you can get tickets. So happy to be on stage with a real musician like you. No, well, I'm happy to be on stage with a real live podcast because I've seen you do it. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen you at work on the live podcast stage, and you've talked about, we don't have to name any names, but you've talked about some of your favorite podcasts mm-hmm. that you've seen live that you felt were less than compelling. They stink. They stink. <laughs> you can't You can't just do, this is one thing I was talking, Mutlu and I were talking about, you can't just do the pod on the stage, because the pod is for people listening to the pod, the people on the stage are, when you're on stage in front of people, they're, they're looking for a different experience. So we're going to make it a... A different experience is the hope with the with the covers and the conversation and all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, man. It's going to be great. Fifteen dollar ticket, you get basically a full Mootloo show plus this in there. Come on, plus Spike Eskin on stage live and direct, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now one thing, I imagine you will say no, and it is probably right that you say no. One thing that has become famous at the Right Stricky Sanchez podcast is I, I always do a poem that obliterates someone. You, so you think I should do a oh, poem? Oh, you obliterate someone? Well, the very first one, <laughs> I told Mike, I was like, over. I think it was over email or text message, hey, I want to do slam poetry about uh, Dave, Adam Silver, the, the NBA commissioner. <laughs> that and I get, was, that I understand actually. And he was like, well, all right. Doesn't that sound like cultural appropriation? I was like, it will be fine. Let me do it. And he's like, he's like, whatever. I was like, just let me do it. And I got up on the stage and I did the the poem and everybody went fucking crazy. And then, uh, <laughs> then I did one on stage about Jimmy Butler, but maybe I'll do a nice, I've never done a nice poem. Maybe I'll do some that like might nice be more poetry. Our speed. Yeah. That might be more our speed. Uh, you know, that that seems like it will fit the sentiment of what we do a little more. Like, I get I get it I get it for the Ricky that makes perfect sense because that's the like nature if it was of Ricky it, style I would obliterate Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I I or, knew you were gonna say that or I was Taylor just wondering, Swift or something. I, I thought Springsteen well one and one A basically. Yeah. <laughs> so that is May twentieth again. Mootloosesounds.com for tickets are only fifteen bucks. We hope to see you there. We'll also post a link in the description of this podcast. Whether you're listening on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If this is your first time listening, we are a music appreciation podcast. Our intro music right there is from the great Philadelphia's own Marianne Hill. We do every every uh, podcast. We do one album that is one of our favorites and one album that is a listener favorite. If you want to suggest an album, do it at carlandryrecordclub.com or go in the Apple Podcast Reviews, leave us five stars, leave it in the review along with your name, and then grip it, rip it, and move on. Um, Today's podcast is about two albums, as I said. One is Paul Williams' Surf Music from 2018 
This came from an emailer. We don't often take the emailers because, um, because we're biased against them, but uh, <laughs> came from emailer Christian. Christian says, hi, Spike and Mutlu. I'm an avid Ricky listener as well as this pod. And I've been trying to get people to listen to this album and I needed to be more recognized for its quality. The album Surf Music by Paul Williams is a fantastic album. And I think it's specifically oriented towards you guys because of its basketball references. Paul Williams co-hosts a basketball podcast called the Advanced Analytics NBA Podcast. And two songs in the album reference Anthony Bennett and (laughs) the draft as main themes. Hilarious. I never thought Anthony Bennett would make it into a song, not but once, did. but twice. twice. Yep. <laughs> uh, these details got me hooked, but the rest of the album is phenomenal. Should be appreciated. It's definitely worth of a list, worthy of a listen. Uh, if you have any taste in music, you'll see that as well. And Mutler's pick is, is this, uh, I, I saw a bunch of different dates. 1962, does that sound right? For 1962, Grand yeah. The okay. remaster, I think, came out in 2004, 2005, but the original release date is 62. Uh, 1962's Feeling the Spirit from Grant Green. I do not remember what we did last week, whether we did the uh, the um, the listener album first or the or the or our album first. Do you remember? I can't quite recall. I think maybe did we do the listener first? I, I I'm it's it's a it's, it's a hmm. blur in my mind. I don't remember. So we're gonna have to flip the internet coin. I'm sorry. Flip it. Flip it. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. I got to get the internet coin out. Internet coin flip. Here we flip go. I was it, not flip prepared. It and and groove on. I was trying to create a new catchphrase, didn't work. There we go. All right. So whatever you call will be your album, Grant Green. And it's flipped. Heads. It's tails. Oh. oh. I want you I want you to see that it's tails. <laughs> Whoa, you can't see. It says tails. You see that? For the first time. I see it, yeah. For yeah. the first time in history. I, I can't remember a time when it was tails. Well, one honestly, out of like 50 times it has to yeah, go tails. Hold on. My light fell. My, my <laughs> screen fell. Everything fell. What a disaster. Okay. So the listener album will be first. Again, from emailer Christian. Again, you can go to uh, carlandryrecordclub.com to suggest your album. Paul Williams Surf Music. She said she wants braces, but you don't need She's not wearing This came out in 2018. Paul Williams is from New Zealand, which is not Australia. Oh, by the way, speaking of Australia, um, the Daniel John's solo album, uh, Future Never, came out this week, finally. Oh, it dropped this week. Wow. It did drop this week. Sadly, he is not around to promote it. As about three weeks ago, Daniel Johns, who has had many, many battles, uh, noted battles with addiction, was in a a head-on car accident as he was um, drinking while driving, posted an apology on um, on his Instagram, basically saying that he had been dealing with fits of anxiety. He had been medicating with alcohol, which he knows he shouldn't do, and that he was going directly into rehab. So sadly, a time when it seemed like he was having a rebirth and seemed like in all the press that he did just looked so healthy and vibrant and alive, you know, is a, this is a, a demon that can, that, that 
even when you kick it, you're never totally kicking it as Daniel Johns has, has proven. So the album sadly comes out while he is in rehab and he didn't, you know, he was in that car accident that two people were treated for injuries and are okay that were in the other car. They weren't, they weren't seriously injured or killed, but, but that is a sad moment. It's a really cool album, very all over the place as you would expect, but sad that it came out under these circumstances. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. And, uh, yeah, it seemed like he was kind of uh, on the cusp of, uh, a, a resurgence or yeah, just a revamping of things. And, uh, that, that's, that's sad to hear and unfortunately commonplace. I mean, you know, artists are, many artists are, are tormented in some way. And uh, sure. it's just the reality of, I think it's part of being a creative person sometimes, just the way you experience the world, you're hypersensitive and sometimes you turn to substances to sort of alleviate that. Yeah, I I had, along with looking forward to the album, which I, I was, I was looking forward to the press. And I know that sounds crazy, I just, I, I love that podcast series he did, um, you know, several months ago about, it was just a lot of him talking, telling his story, him talking. And then the ones that came out afterwards, they released a lot of the interviews in their raw form. So him talking to Natalie Imbruglia, his ex-wife for like 40 minutes was super interesting. I was looking forward to the press and hearing him talk and hearing what he had to say about all these songs. Like the, the lead track on the album, apparently he invited the two guys from Silverchair to play on the outro and they declined, which I would really? like to hear him talk about, you know, like I would, I would love to hear him talk about those things. I would love to hear him talk about, um, you know, one of the songs is a reworking of a song they call a Silverchair song called Freak. as a female vocalist on it is really, I would just love to hear him talk about this stuff. And I feel like as a consumer or as a fan of his, I'm, obviously my first thought is I want him to be well, but I was, I just want to hear, to hear him talk about the album, you know, and I'm not, we're sort of robbed of that, which is a bummer too. Well, I'm still so. going to hold out hope that he'll end up on this podcast at some point. I'm just at putting it point. into the universe. That's all. Would love it. Would love L it. Planting the seed. In any case, Paul Williams from New Zealand, as our email I wrote in, also has a, a podcast with his brother, who is actually more famous than, than he is, his brother, Glenn. The podcast is called the Advanced Analytics NBA Podcast. It is uh, not about advanced analytics at all. <laughs> they just thought it would be funny to call it that and not have it be that at all, which is <laughs> right that. up my fucking alley. <laughs> like is the, 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 almost the best thing you could do. I immediately listened to the podcast this morning. And it's funny to hear the, the dynamic because there's another guy on the podcast too. Paul is definitely the Mike of the pod who seems completely disinterested in the podcast while his brother is coming up with all the things to talk about, which is really funny. Um, he's a comedian. Paul Williams is a comedian. Okay, that makes his, sense. That makes sense. For sure, absolutely. He grew up doing a lot of musical theater and while he was doing it, also dabbled in sort of like comedy music rap stuff that he would put on YouTube in his teens. Then he goes to the Witteria Performance Center, which is, I guess, a New Zealand um, school to study music theater. And he continued to do that. After he graduates, he puts on a traveling comedy show called Summertime Love, which was a fake uh, romantic game show 
like that was a was a comedy show that he put on that actually toured and he ended up winning this thing called the billy t award for best newcomer the billy t awards are uh, new zealand comedy awards and he wins the best newcomer award in 2017 he had put out a couple of eps in 2014 and 2015 but he puts out surf music in 2018 which is his first full length what an interesting album i love this album now we've talked before about albums having a sense of humor but not being joke albums i think this fits in there though there are moments where he is being he's clearly being funny i would not put it in a in the in the category of joke music or comedy music i would say it is pop music with a comedy sensibility and well and it is very strange you know like um and it's got the basketball the basketball references in it it sounds like like an album full of like love songs like i you, you know really even when he's talking about basketball it's still a love song and it's a very sweet album with a lot of sweet tones, you know, from the falsetto he does to the, the keyboards to, to all of those things, but a real, um, like an amazing pop sensibility. Some songs are very clear down the middle pop songs. And there are other sort of like, uh, moments on the album where it is not, doesn't really seem to conform to any sort of style at all. It, uh, and he sings with an accent, which I love too. You, you don't hear it all the time, but you do hear it sometimes. It reminds me of, for just to put it in a world, like a combination of bleachers and hello, goodbye. Um, <laughs> with uh, sort of a bleachers pop sensibility, but a hello, goodbye, uh, bubbly, almost cartoonish vibe to it. It opens up with the title track. Now we're which is called surf music, which is um, all in falsetto. The, it almost sounds like a dream, the song, like a, a daydream has, you know, for a song called surf music has very like surf-like percussion and, and uh, a really, I just think interesting introduction to the album. And they come back to the album, come back to that later on called, uh, what is it? Euroleague superstar or something, which is like, a, a continuation. Oh no, I'm sorry. That's of, of number one. So that's of the next song I'm talking about. So the next song is my favorite song of the album called number one. But I promise that I'll try. I promise that I'll try. I could be your number one. I could be your Anthony Bennett. I'll be your Anthony Bennett. I ain't no one and done. I could be your Anthony Bennett. I'll be your a love song. Bennett for people who remember the 2013 NBA draft. <laughs> so specific. <laughs> like, so the, the first thing that, that I liked about this song before he gets to the chorus, which is, I can be your number one, I'll be your Anthony Bennett, which is really very <laughs> funny for anyone who understands it. Anthony Bennett was a surprise pick and a flop. So- Like maybe the to, worst draft flop in 
At least a decade and a half. Yeah. I mean, everybody was shocked that he went number one. He didn't work. He barely played in the NBA. Um, and then the, he comes back to it with EuroLeague later, which is a, a minute and a half sort of reworking the same uh, the same melody of, of this, but like slowed down. I was just like Anthony Bennett. Now I'm pulling in the EuroLeague. Anthony Bennett. Yeah, I'm bowling in the Euro League. Anthony Bennett. But it is a love song. And to say that you want to be someone's Anthony Bennett, I just want to dig deeper on that. But before it even got to the NBA stuff, I thought the lyrics were very, almost like humor emo in the beginning. But I love the first, like the intro and the first verse. First of all, I love this. I might not be the sharpest crayon, but that's because I'm your favorite. <laughs> and like the reason is, is that the sharpest, the crayon, the, your favorite crayon is not sharp because you use it all the time. And <laughs> I, like, I think that's a, a clever turn of phrase. I may not be the sharpest crayon because I'm your favorite. My jokes are pretty dry. Sometimes I'm a mess, but if you wash that I can dry and I might not be the best, but I promise that I'll try. I think it's like a really sweet set of lyrics, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and then also in the in the song, please don't do me like they did Nerland's Noel with a close up on my frown. Amazing. Like, I mean, like for, for someone who has followed the draft, especially for like Sixers fans, to get a Nerland's reference, a Nerland's mention. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's just. <laughs> Um, and then the other song I'll mention, I, lo I love surf music. I love number one. And the final song is a song called Marina. As well. I'm watching you walking away and I'm frozen here in Waverly. There ain't no words I could say. Girl, I'm just frozen here in Waverly. And Tim K's here buying a bagel. I don't care. I'm frozen here in Waverly. Which is... Um, a very strange song, I think, in that the combination of talking and half singing and not your typical pop song, though it does sound very sweet and, and syrupy. Um, what are the lyrics I like? You're like that twilight in Spain and no, I haven't been, but I'm sure it's pretty as hell. Like, <laughs> I like that he says... You're like Twilight in Spain, but I haven't been there. So I don't even know what it's like, but I'm sure it's pretty. Uh, I think that is a, a wonderful, it's a very short album is 34 minutes or something like that. And 10 songs, um, a really just sort of a revelation of something that I had never heard of, would not expect and, uh, and w will not soon forget. Um, I would love to talk to this guy in the same way that I wanted to talk to, who was the guy that wrote, um, who was the guy that we, that said he would come on and then we didn't get him that wrote, that is basically writing songs from a, Oh, Oh, Alex Cameron, Alex Cameron in the same way that I wanted to have Alex Cameron on. I would love to talk to, and he's out touring to right now. I think Alex. Cameron. Oh, is he Alex Cameron? Is? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He's, uh, what did you think of it? I really liked it. I'm going to work backwards. Okay. I think the moment where it all clicked for me was towards the end. Hmm. On the song, well, no, I liked it from the very beginning, but right. where I kind of got the the essence of it, I think it came right towards the end on the song Crush Crush. Crush, 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 cr
Crunch, crunch, chippy, chippy, brain. She likes the shine that you get from the heat. She oh, yeah. I mean, there's this like weird, like, spoke, <laughs> very bizarre sort of spoken section in the outro. It says, it's so crunchy, so much flavor. It's the crunch, crunch, and the crush, crush. And my brain in my brain, my brain is full of mush, mush, because I crush, crush. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know why at that moment it all came together <laughs> for me. It's just such a weird. It's it's humorous, but it's like a very bizarre brand of humor. Yeah, and yeah. musically speaking, it's top notch. I mean, this is not gimmicky production in any way. It's not. Uh, it's not like lo-fi even. There's some real production, but I mean, the, the record opens with this like Beach Boys kind of thing. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, but then it takes all these twists and turns. The fact that it <laughs> references Anthony Bennett not once but twice. Yeah, makes it singular. I think it's just very unique. But I think what I understood about that other song, or once I got that point, oh, this guy, this is a comedy album of sorts. Uh, when you said he was a comedian, then it all made sense to me because I was like, is this guy a musician who just is very eccentric, or is he a comedian who happens to be quite talented musically and sort of bridge the two together? Because I, I don't think I've heard a sort of a humorous, tongue-in-cheek. I'm quite like this because there is something very earnest about it and there is yes. something very heartfelt and sentimental about it. Yeah. I um, I think one of the reasons I like it so much is that it is not an album that is made for anybody. Like It's made I, for I don't, him. He's just having fun. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I suppose you could say it was made for me, but, but aside <laughs> from, a, like, it seems like such a small audience who would even sort of understand what he's doing. I think it works on a number of levels. Like I think just in terms of ear candy, it's hard to listen to it and not like be like, oh, that's nice. Like right. like it, he, he has a, as you mentioned, it is, it sounds polished. The songs are, are well-written, all of those things. And I think if you don't pay too much attention to it, it can work on just a, oh, that sounds nice sort of way. But I think like all the other levels it works on from the, the, the sort of sarcastic self-effacing comedy part of it to the love note part of it, which is, this is certainly almost seems like aimed at a girl that he thinks is out of his league. You know, right. like that's that's the way I feel like, the, like a longing. There's a, a longing to this album and a, and a, I just started dating you and I can't believe that I'm dating you sort of uh, feel to this. And, uh, and it works on that level too. It's a very quirky and strange album. And I love that. I love that it's an album that does not seem like it would appeal to any large group at all. And it's still so well done. Yeah, that's the thing. What puts it over the top, I think, is the, the musical component. Right. Because if it was just these songs, like the songs are more of a, a vehicle for the humor and you get a, a sense of this guy's personality, which is really eccentric and funny. Mm -hmm. But I think it's the production that sets it aside because uh, I'm thinking like a track like Clouston Bridge. It's one o'clock in the morning. You can tell I'm pretty tired, I'm yawning, but I don't want to go that way. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. That's a really cool track. It, it, there's a nice dynamic of the tracks where it can be very sparse. Yep. And and then at other moments becomes very lush and layered with the vocals and 
that one in particular, I thought production-wise was really interesting. Sort of this nice, propulsive, but laid back kind of synth groove, which reminds me of some other things I've heard, but never in a context of that kind of song or this kind of record. You know, you, I think of it more like indie rock, that place where indie and electronic music, uh, you know, come mm-hmm. together, and there's never anything humorous, or rarely anything humorous about those kind of records. So you hear these like elements of contemporary production that I've just never heard in this context where it would be songs writing about, you know, Anthony Bennett and just, just, you know, crunchy, crunchy and just generally bizarre humor. He, he did three shows to support this in the United States in 2019. (laughs) He did an LA show, a New York show. I was looking at it earlier because I was looking at his merch. He has great, great merch, by the way. Um, Where did he play when he did those dates? Hold on, I'm going to tell you in a second. I'm curious, like, what his draw would be around this. Right, like, like, wait, hold on. Okay, there's his Twitter, Paul Williams twelve, and his website, Paul Williams twelve. All right, he played actually two United States shows and one London show. So in London, he played 93 feet east. In New York City, he played the Mercury Lounge Uh and. Los Angeles, he played Hotel Cafe, which oh, Butch well, Walker plays all the time. Yeah, I love I love Hotel Cafe. I usually, I played the second room. Oh, that There's was 2021. Big... He just played this past December at, in hotel, at Hotel Cafe. Really? He was there the month a month after I was there. Wow. Oh, wow. Small world, man. So it's funny. I'm on the Hotel <laughs> Cafe website. It says, Paul Williams has uh, arrived in Hollywood. He's staying at his friend's house in Glendale. This show is the fourth stop on Paul's very slow world tour, which started in 2019. <laughs> Paul's self-produced uh, EP surf music was well, relatively well-received by the people who heard it. He describes his sound as, quote, quite nice. Paul will be singing his hits. <laughs> Asterisk and other new songs that no one has heard. Some really nice stuff, Grammy Award winning producer David Kahn says. (laughs) (laughs) You just got to love someone who's committing to taking the piss out of it. Yeah. On an international scale. Like, you know, he's performing his hits. (laughs) But you know what? Hotel Cafe would be the perfect place to see him. Whether there's the original room that's a little bigger. And then there's kind of the uh, second stage, which is where I played, which is even more intimate. But either of those rooms, I think, would <laughs> would be great to experience this live because you're kind of right up on people. Like you would get, you would get all the nuance of what this guy's doing. I'm curious what his setup is. I I could almost see. I'm gonna go off on a little tangent here. Okay, I could okay. almost see him doing something that I started thinking about. I can almost see him like playing like a track and it's just a track and him singing. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh. what's your take on this? Because I I played a show in uh, Lake Orion, Michigan this uh, this past week, just a few days ago, actually. Uh, it was a lot of fun and shout out to everybody who, who made it uh, to that show because I know some of those folks listen to the pod. Really cool listening room out in the suburbs of Detroit. And then I had a thought, like I sit there and I play an acoustic guitar, right? And then I thought, well... What if I could like, because I don't tour the band, what if I could just cue up a track, put the guitar down, mm-hmm. get up on the mic and just front without a band behind me? Is that, now the musical purist in me says that's not acceptable. Oh, I think it's acceptable. Do you, well, I'm, 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 I'm curious what you think. What's whatever people on? enjoy. The, the goal of the show is to have people enjoy it. 
right? And, and yeah. to give them an experience. Like nobody doesn't think you can play guitar. <laughs> Like, right, right. You know, I, I don't know. And who knows how many times we've seen shows that we've enjoyed where they've been playing tracks along that we never knew. I don't, I don't feel I, I guess I always frowned that. upon that, but that's a weird, purest thing that I should detach myself from because it doesn't make sense for me to tour the band, but I feel like I can, can, I can take things to a different level if I can be free of the guitar yeah. and have more of a track and groove behind me, whether that's live musicians or not. And it got me thinking, this record got me thinking about it because I could picture him because he has this sort of (laughs) bizarre tongue in cheek. I could picture him doing that, like this guy with these tracks and just him and a mic up there. Yeah, I think that would be great. And honestly, there are some you could have the the track and there are some you could pick up the guitar and play with the track if you wanted to, if there was a song you wanted to do that on. I, I think that's totally fine. I'm looking at his Instagram. His recent, he did a show in Melbourne on April 20th. (laughs) <laughs> it just says Paul Williams sings his hits and it has a, like a, a picture of him there with his mouth half open. Like he's, it's very this guy's awesome. Yeah. Is he, does he do stand up shows or is this, or is he more of a musician who's just doing comedy? I have no idea that there's nothing on his Instagram about stand up dates. So he's kind so. of just a guy who is doing shows here and there and, Yep. Uh, I, I assume this was independently released. Yeah, just having a good time. That's it. I'm going to try to get him <laughs> on. He's a big Orlando Magic fan. I heard him talking about Marco. I listened to the podcast, um, a recent episode this morning, and it seems like he's a big Orlando Magic fan and had some things to say about Marco Fultz. So maybe he would he would want to come on to talk about Marco Fultz and we could also oh, talk that'd about be great. his music. I, yeah. I got to show some love to Marco Fultz. Marco Fultz, yes, because did you see the quote from him? Not a real quote. That's fake? Not a real quote. Oh, no. Not a real quote. Where he was basically saying it's a conspiracy as to why Embiid's not going to win the MVP? Not a real quote. Oh, why did you ruin that for me, man? Sorry. (laughs) When you you go from the original source of it, it it's funny. It was a, uh, like the Twitter appears to be uh, a black woman. Um, who is tweeting out like a, a graphic, an infographic with the, um, with the quote on it and crediting it to a certain radio station in Orlando. You go to her bio and it's, it says she works for Grundle Sports. Um, oh, no. So it's yeah. made up? So he didn't, so, so how did it become discredited? Because I never... That, so I never you, go to, you, go to, you go to that radio station's website, there's no record of any Markel Fultz um, oh, no. interview there. I'm sorry. Well, still, it did. even though it's not real, listen. <laughs> Give him credit anyway. Listen, listen. Uh, I have to say, <laughs> every player in the league, and just a very thinks brief it tangent, should be Embiid. Thinks, thinks it should be Embiid, including the best player in the league, Kevin Durant. I know he's struggling yeah. this series, but he's still the best player in basketball. I don't care what anybody says. And Embiid, well, actually, it might be Joel Embiid now. So, but when the guy who's traditionally considered the best player in the league says this is the MVP, I don't care what a hundred MVP voters who are writers and commentators say. We all know the players know, and honestly, all those people who who want to hate on Embiid in Philly, they would love it if he was on their team. The, if, yeah. if he were traded their team they would be elated. So all this nonsense is like, stop the nonsense. I know he's not going to get it. Makes me really, I haven't been this angry since the Lebetar thing where he trashed Philly. And, 
you know, it's going to age. It's going to age particularly poorly. It, yeah. This is this this MVP decision to give it to Jokic is going to age poorly. And like, by the way, Jokic it. is a great player, man. He He's is great. a phenomenal passer, playmaker. I've never seen a big man who can pass like him. It's not about trashing him. No, there are a lot of great players in the NBA. There's only one MVP every year. It should be Embiid. No, Embiid no is the most dominant force in the league. I've, I don't know, maybe since Shaq, but he's more skilled than Shaq. So I've been watching basketball since I was five. I, there, we've never seen a guy like him. He's singular. He's unprecedented. It's disgraceful, I think we could we could easily say. He's going to win it next year. Even if oh. his, he doesn't have as good of a season next year, he's going to win it next year because people will have to— As an apology almost. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when people who should have been nominated or won an Oscar didn't get it one year— then they get it maybe for a slightly lesser performance, perhaps years later. It's well. There's happen. one thing I can tell you: the Rice Ricky Sanchez community is going to be very annoying about this MVP award. Oh, for good, good, a long time. Good, yeah. just don't be quiet. I mean, guns are blazing, man, because yes. this is really frustrating. If you, you know, and I'll, I know you're you eat, sleep, and drink basketball. This is a waste from that, but we're still an offshoot of the Ricky. So I, I have to like get my frustration out uh, because it's. I, it's, it's so upsetting to me, you know? I'll tell you this. We are working on a t-shirt and I haven't said this on the Ricky pod. So this is only for Carl listeners. <laughs> we get and the I, exclusive here. <laughs> I won't say what's on the front of the t-shirt, but on the back of the t-shirt, we will be listing the names of every person who did not vote for Joel Embiid for oh, the 2022 MVP. That so, is awesome. <laughs> so you're not yes. getting... You know, you're not getting off the hook on this one is, is all. Now, I'll how say. do you, is there a way to, I guess, post vote, there's a way to acquire that yes. information? As okay. soon as the vote comes out, we'll be able to get and, the And how many voters is it? You know, Look, I, I know Stephen saw, A. Smith voted for him because he, you know. Um, hold on. I just saw the NBA Rookie of the Year voting. Hold on. Let me see how we many got Stephen votes A's vote. Is. That's got to mean something, right? Um, how many? Uh Hundred sports writers and broadcasters. Come on, that shouldn't. That's ridiculous. Let the so, players be part of it. Why? Well, pl- I mean, I don't know. You the know, players pe- know, people don't like players' opinions either, though. They because because players value as a very specific thing too. Like players love bucket getters. Like that's why players love Kyrie. Players fucking love. They love Kyrie. I mean, he's like, an amazing love, player. I mean, yeah, they, but they love. People complain because people complain because players have a, a vote for all star and people don't like like people don't like player opinions either. I'm just saying whoever votes is getting this one wrong. They're just they're getting this one wrong. Like voting voting for Jokic is wrong. It should be Embiid. When he's about to get swept too. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, but why do they I don't I don't understand this. Why do they why don't they do this voting a little bit later? Why well, not? Because it is a regular season out. award. It's a regular uh, season award. Uh, whatever. When did you know when they're announcing it? You, uh, I think later in the summer. Let me see. When do? Because they? they just did Rookie of the Year and they did uh, the Marcus Smart Defense Player of the Year and um, June. Uh, no, no set, no set date. Toward the end of June. By the way, so. Embiid could have won Defensive Player of the Year too. He could have. Is there sure. anyone that's more imposing if if a player is going to the rim than him? No. Can I tell you who who wasn't going to win Defensive Player of the Year? Nikola Jokic is not going to win. Yeah, because he's like I don't care what the analytics say. He's not good. He's too no. slow on defense. He's too slow. Just look at him. Fuck the him watching test. games. When did we give up on the eye test? By the way, I mean, bro, when- <laughs> I'm fully in on eye test. 100%. Oh man. All right. 
I do, can I ask you? Do you get stressed out watching these games? Because I I literally had to stop watching yesterday because I I was I was like feeling like tense and anxiety ridden. I was like, I can't do this to myself. I don't get stressed out anymore. I um I, I just feel bad for Embiid because he's like his hand is obviously fucked up and it's not going to be good again for the rest of the playoffs. And he can shoot, but obviously it's going to be a problem. Like his passes were going all over the place because he yeah. does those one handed with his right hand. And obviously like his rebounding was affected because he doesn't want it to get hit. And I just like, I just want the guy to get through the playoffs without some fucking crazy thing one time. You know, he had a yeah. broken face once, he had the knee problem, he had the fucking Ben last year. I just want him to get through the playoffs. I just feel bad for him. But honestly. it'll be all the more satisfying and heroic if he still gets us there. Even if we mm. just get to the Eastern Conference Finals and have a good run of it, I, I can live with that. I can live with yeah. that. That's a good setup for next year. I think if they get to the Eastern Conference Finals, they should be happy with that. Yeah, and by the point. way, Tyrese Maxey is a superstar in the making, so he's going to be one year further along. You know. He disappeared in that uh, game five. I, I don't. A lot I, of ma- game I don't. Four, I don't feel upset about that because let's not forget he's still a very young player. That's going to happen. But a year or two from now, that won't happen because just think of the progression he made. He's not like yeah. Simmons. He, he he's someone who constantly improves, and he, th- that's kind of the growing pains of a young player in the postseason. You know, this rights Ricky Sanchez moment <laughs> is brought to you by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. I just needed to get that out of my system. All right. There we go. Um, all right. So we're wrapping up. Paul Williams, go listen to it. It's called Surf Music. I'll tweet at him, try to get him on the pod in my quest to get Australians or New Zealanders on the pod. The next one is yours. Comes from 1962. Yeah. That is uh, Grant Green and Feeling the Spirit. say this on any given day i would say grant green is my favorite guitarist wow there yeah you go. i love grant green i've been listening to him for most of my life i think because when i first got into listening to pop music i also got into jazz and my entry point into jazz was jazz guitarists i think i may, maybe talked about this a little bit with the miles episode but to me uh, grant green Wes montgomery kenny burrell and there are many other great guitars, but those are the three that sort of introduced me to jazz guitar. Wes Montgomery's probably the most influential jazz guitarist. Kenny Burrell's right up there. I think the big difference with Grant Green is that he wasn't, uh, whereas like the Wes Montgomery school and many guitarists that followed him played in a chordal sort of fashion as far as their style on the fretboard, especially with Wes Montgomery, he often soloed in octaves. Mm-hmm. Grant Green was closer to like the blues and uh, sort of a single note style, which is kind of against the grain of what a lot of the great jazz guitarists were considered to have done post West Montgomery. So I know it's getting a little roundabout, but I think Grant Green is unheralded, but also completely unique in the history of jazz guitarists. And I think sadly, it's partially because his life was cut short. You know, he passed when he was only 43, but I just love his playing. I think he's one of the, there's certain players that you just you feel the emotion they're playing and that's hard to do on the guitar I, I you can hear guys who can shred and 
play a million notes. You can guys hear guys who play in a more linear, melodic fashion as Grant Green does, but there's only certain guys who convey like a level of emotion in their playing, and you Dude, get I- it in performance after performance, and he he's one of them. So just to give a little backdrop, born in St. Louis in 1935, he was basically a prodigy. He began studying guitar at a very young age and first started performing professionally when he was only 13 years old in a, in a gospel ensemble. So 13. Yeah. He's fucking playing and, Nintendo. Yeah. This guy's playing professionally as a guitar player. Yeah, in a gospel group, you know? Yeah. So from a very young age. Now, the interesting thing about Grant Green, and I think it speaks to that style that I was talking about, the more single note linear style as opposed to a more chordal style of playing and soloing is most of his influences were horn players uh, like Charlie Parker. He was more inspired by how horn players attacked their solos and the approach that they took. So that kind of influences playing in a different kind of way. In 1959, he was playing in a bar in St. Louis and the legendary jazz saxophonist Lou Donaldson discovered him, basically. I mean, people knew who he was, but he was more regional. Lou Donaldson introduced him to the Blue Note co-founder, Alfred Lyon, and Alfred Lyon immediately fell in love with Grant Green's sound. And he did something that was unusual in those days. A lot of times a musician would come to fold a Blue Note and maybe start out as a sideman at first. Even when we talked about Miles, uh, who wasn't on Blue Note at that time, but in that early part of his career, he was working mainly as a sideman for a number of years until he emerged as a leader. But Alfred Lyon wanted, you know, he wanted Grant Green to basically be a leader and a sideman from day one. He's like, this guy has the goods. He should be featured. He should be the marquee name on some of these records. As a result, from 1961 to 1965, there is no musician who recorded for Blue Note at a more prolific rate. That's pretty remarkable when you consider that's a really peak era of Blue Note records, of jazz, and no one appeared on more records than him, both as a leader and as a sideman. Yeah, I was going to say, like, to be the most prolific at a time where so many were so prolific is certainly, a, a you know, is yeah. certainly meaningful, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And he, he hit the ground running. 1962, he was named Best New Star in that downbeat uh, critics poll, which was, you know, kind of the gatekeeper of jazz music at the time. Now, he left Blue Note in 66, and it's almost like he, you know, they said the saying that like the, a star that shines too bright sometimes, you know, sometimes burns out too quickly. It's kind of what happened to him. He left Blue Note in 66. He started recording for a few other labels, including Verve, but most of that latter period of the 60s, 67 and 69, he, was, he wasn't very active because he was consumed with heroin addiction. And from there on, for the rest of his life, he dealt with a lot of health issues, which is really sad because he was a guy that I think had a lot more in him. And it was just the combination of addiction and health problems that sort of slowed him up. Now, I shouldn't say he did release records in the 70s, and he did some great work in the 70s. And he did eventually come back to Blue Note, do more records for them. But by the time he got to 1978, mind you, at this time, he's only like 42 years old. He spent most of that year in the hospital. And... Once he was finally recovering, the doctors told him, look, you, you can't tour like this. You can't have this musician's life. You just can't do it. Your body can't take it. Because he was in a position where he needed to go out and make money, mm. he ignored that advice and went out and performed. Sadly, January uh, 1979, he died of a heart attack. As he was 
in his car getting ready to go do a gig. I mean, it's just a such a tragedy, you know. The guy was only 43 years old and you know, it's just it's just sad when you think of musicians like that. Like what else could they have done? He probably could yeah. have done so much more. I, the reason I think he would have evolved in a lot of different ways is what made him unique was not was that he wasn't really just tethered to being a traditional jazz player. Like his playing came more from blues and gospel and funk and I think his style was like an amalgam of all those things. And I could have seen him, you know, collaborating with hip hop artists and getting more into the R and B soul world because his his style I think just covered that whole range of sounds. He was best known as a jazz musician, but he was really much more than that. And he brought a different approach and a, a more well rounded approach maybe than some players did. But getting back to it, that era of 1961 to 65, that first half of the 60s, he released so much great music. And he did a series of these sort of uh, conceptual albums where he would take a particular style or set of tunes and then kind of infuse his own musical vision into it. Now, Feeling the Spirit was one of those conceptual albums. So basically a record centered around African-American spirituals. Mm -hmm. And he put together an incredible lineup for this band, uh, for this record. Grant Green on guitar, Herbie Hancock on piano, another legend, legendary musician who also worked with Miles Davis, Butch Warren on bass, Billy Higgins on drums, and Garvin Masseau on tambourine. Now, I want to read something from the original liner notes that were written by Joe Goldberg just to give an idea of the sort of perspective or the approach that Grant Green had when he was recording this record, how he wanted to approach these songs. He said, Green has made no attempt here to recreate the five spirituals he plays in anything resembling their original context. Nor has he tried to duplicate their often pallid manifestation on the concert stage. He's approached them with affection, but has music to be played in his style. The result is a fascinating combination. The techniques of modern jazz, blues, and gospel all apply to the spiritual. That kind of touches right on what I was saying, that it was never just a straight-ahead jazz record with Grant Green. There was much more to it. Now I'm going to go through a few highlights, and I'm curious to get your take on this. I like that we're branching off into jazz more and more. Now with some of these yeah, movies. You, you went right after it. Yeah, after we had the the one I last week, you're like, I'm doubling down here. I'm doubling down. I'm following. Um, uh, we went down a a road, and we're gonna keep going down it, buddy. I I had to because I I thought well, the reason it came about was because we were talking about Miles Davis, and I was mm -hmm. talking about that record. It's kind of like Jazz 101. Yep. But I always think back to my entry point was always these great jazz guitars, and I don't know. There's something about players who can play in that jazz style who have the chops but then can communicate something that to me in music there's nothing more satisfying than that there's nothing yeah this more is this is different i mean you'll you'll talk about the songs that you like but this one to me is it says a different thing than the other one says it oh yeah in a yeah different this way, is in a very different know? place yeah yep. so my favorite track on here i'll just say one of my favorite jazz recordings of all time just musical recordings of all time is go down moses Their interpretation of that song on here exemplifies what makes Grant Green and this album so special. You have this 
just really incredible arc to the performance. Now, it's bookended on with uh, the core melody, very recognizable classic melody that you hear at the beginning at the end. But then in between there, Grant Green and the band, they just take the song melodically and harmonically into so many different places. And the more I've listened to this particular track, I like hear something new every time I listen to it. And I think this also is a great snapshot of his sort of soulful single note style. There's always this, you know, you play guitar so you know, and I know rhythm is your thing. Like, I was curious if you picked up on this. There's always this great rhythm, rhythmic pocket. Even though he plays single note, he doesn't play chordal. There's always this great rhythmic pocket to how he solos. And the way he attacks the solos, just where he lands on the beat. Was that something that you kind of keyed in on? Yeah, well, he's not just, you know, so much of jazz to me seems like just, I please don't anyone who likes jazz take offense <laughs> to this, but like noodling needlessly over like in key, but like not playing along with the music. Right. I think that it can the feel best that way, way on some records. I agree. It can at times. The the thing, the way that I described it, which is, I think I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing that you are, is that in, on this album, the guitar acts as the vocals. Right. And exactly. You, you can't act as the vocals if you're doing that. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense if you're doing the thing that we're just talking about, but you you have to you have to stay sort of like on beat and in that pocket if you are acting as the vocals which the the guitar does in this and we'll get to it but like the ability to express emotion all those things but like in terms of like playing i think that's that's the way that i described it that is right on the money and i think is the magic of his playing i'll put it another way i'll hear melodies from his solos in my head like Mm -hmm. because I've listened to that track in particular so many times, I'll hear bits of his solo as standalone melodies in my head, and I, that yep. melody will pop in. It's like as he's soloing, he's creating fresh new melodies over those core changes. The mm -hmm. other co-star of this record, who's amazing on this album, is just a, obviously one of the great musicians of all time, Herbie Hancock. His accompaniment with Grant Green, and then the way they sort of trade off on their solos is just superb to me. And Herbie Hancock also has that ability in his soloing where he's just creating new melodies on the spot, you know? And I just find that this song in particular is just such a high point for for music that, like, you know these guys have incredible chops, like, incredible chops, but it's not about that. They're trying to communicate something. They're taking this beautiful spiritual, this melody that we all recognize and, and taking it into all these different directions. But... It's not noodling. It's not just playing to play. It's trying to communicate something. Yep. Uh, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Another haunting bluesy kind of recording. It's it's kind of a almost a you know if, if you were to release a single to go down Moses, this would be the perfect B side. You know that it has that bluesy quality to it. Uh, I love the way the rhythm section vamps under Grant Green on that one. And there's something that Grant Green does on this song that you'll hear in other parts where sometimes he'll come to a point in the solo where he'll lock in on like three or four notes and he'll just play those. <laughs> It's almost like absurdly repetitive, 
Mm-hmm. But what happens is he locks into that melody and it doesn't feel re- repetitive in the sense that he stays on it long enough that you hear the changes underneath that line. And he does that for an extended period on this record. And again, it's about making those three, four notes special. It's kind of like you were talking about like the, the guitar is an extension of the voice. That's mm-hmm. exactly how B.B. King thought of guitar. You know, he didn't play a million notes either. He would play three, four notes that would just that would just resonate. And he was always thinking of the guitar as an extension of his voice. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of playing you hear you hear in this record. And then nobody knows the trouble I've seen. They get into more of this ballad section and. beautiful intro from Herbie Hancock and Grant Green, but I, I love this record. If you like this one, for anyone, if this is a like, first time hearing Grant Green, just go through the list of those records from the early 60s in particular. There were some other conceptual albums he did where he would just, just like this one, you know, settle in on a particular genre and style and then use those compositions as like a launching pad for sort of his musical vision. But you know, if you love jazz, if you love blue note, and if you love groove music, there's you know this is just a starting point for Grant Green. There's there's a lot more to explore. Yeah, I don't really love jazz, but this is a a cool. This is a really good album. You know, um, I, as I mentioned, the the difference between this and the the Miles Davis one, of course, is this is the, the guitar as the lead, which I think is for me personally, I find more interesting than than that. But I also think it's even though the songs are like seven minutes long or whatever, <laughs> it's it's definitely more succinct in its structure than the Miles Davis stuff is and it, it, a little easier to wrap your head around. Um, I thought the guitar playing was awesome. You know, you mentioned uh, Joshua Fit to Battle of Jericho is like sort of like a masterclass in him playing those notes over and over and over <laughs> again and sort of like showing off but not showing off in a way that distracts from the music itself. And that's sort of the difference between somebody from, if you're talking about like rock, somebody like, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen or Slash or or somebody that plays within structure of song compared to somebody like Steve Vai, who- Million notes that don't- Yeah, Yngwie Malmsteen, like these, these guys who are obviously incredible players, but the focus is the guitar playing itself as a, as a, to the song and the guitar playing sort of highlighting it and accenting it like salt would do for food. And I think even even in that particular song where he is showing off a little bit, I think it is additive to the song and not really just the focus of the song. The song is still the focus of the song. And then you mentioned uh, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. I think of all the songs in the album, this is the one where the guitar, I believe, conveys the most emotion and sounds the most like vocals. Almost like makes you want to cry, like the emotion that he is able to convey through the guitar in that song. And uh, and really just, you could probably count on one hand the number of times that you've listened to a, a guitar player be able to to do that, to, to sing with his guitar in a way that is that emotional as it is in that song. I just thought, I thought those, those two were the standouts for me for different ways, but, uh, but really just an, an incredible, and there's something too, by the way, being able to recognize 
the melody of a song to try to consume the jazz as opposed to going into a song that you don't recognize. I almost think it made it like a little bit easier for me to appreciate what was going on because I recognized the melody. That's a great point. And that's why I love that he did this series of conceptual albums because he said, look, yeah. we're going to start with compositions that you know. Yep. You know these melodies. Yep. Now we're going to, and, and there is definitely a format. You In each of these songs you hear, or most of them, you hear that core melody stated up front, mm-hmm. and you hear it at the end. They always come back full circle, so you get the body of the song. So when that when you're starting from a place where you already recognize the melody and the changes, that does give people more of an uh, of a of a way to get into it. And then he says, "Well, look, now we're gonna we're gonna take these changes, that core melody, and we're gonna see how far we can take this in five yep. or six or seven minutes." And uh, and again, I gotta say. Huge props to Herbie Han- Hancock on this one because they're really co-stars. Uh, you know the way they listen to each other, the way they almost respond to each other in their solos is just. Uh, again, it's a record I can listen to over and over again because I always hear something new, and uh, that's what I think the best music does. Like you live with it, and it it kind of evolves for you as you live with it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a. Really a great album. I like I like this one way better, not to compare them, but I liked it way better than the Miles Davis album. I thought it was, uh, it certainly hit me more. Yeah, um, it gets you more of an emotional place, for sure. Mm-hmm. I would say that 100%. Yeah. Great album. Did you, you're going to just keep picking jazz for the remainder I don't know, of the man. Pop? Now I'm tempted. Now, <laughs> <laughs> now I'll mix it up a little bit, but now, now I guess what, this is my first full-on jazz pick. It is, but, yeah. But, but I did Ernest Wranglin, which was essentially a jazz record, albeit with reggae groups, so... I don't usually pick a straight-ahead jazz record. There's normally some sort of hybrid musical I'm situation happening. You. you can pick whatever you want. That's that's the joy of it. I'm going to turn you into jazz. You're going to say by within another, I don't know, X period of time that you are more of a jazz fan than you ever thought you were. That seems unlikely. Is that <laughs> yeah, but, you know, is that just, whatever. Uh, is that just, uh, you know... Yeah. Just wishful thinking. I, I feel like unlikely. I feel like the guitar records. You, I thought, I think yes. you'll appreciate because you play guitar. And yes. there's certain core elements of any style of guitar that, if you play, you're you're going to just be automatically more tuned into it than say you know a trumpet driven record or a sax driven record. Yeah, I think that that is the that's the 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 cheese. If I were the mouse, is the uh, <laughs> the guitar part of it. So, um, all right. Well, we hope to see you on May twentieth again. That is at World Cafe Mootloosounds.com for tickets or the description of this pod. And uh, we will talk to you next week with two new albums. That's it. Stay free, my goose. 